welcome to Fetch the Smelling Salts. I'm Alice Nagel. And I'm Kimberly Marsh, and this is our podcast all about historical dramas, from movies and TV shows to miniseries, from every era and all around the world. Awesome. And how are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. I had some friends visiting this last, you know, week, uh, and they left on Thursday, so I'm sad. Aww. So yeah, feeling, feeling the blues. Well... You know, not as bluey as, uh, you know, the main character in the film. Our film today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I want to say that I feel very connected to our film today because uh, I've just, we've had a series of, like, back-to-back ailments, illnesses in our family that doesn't really compare to the Brontes, but, you know, we can feel dramatic about it. Yeah, We're there you go. quite sorry for ourselves. It had tonsillitis and then, you know, like a bad cold. And it seems like we just got over it and now we have another cold. So I know, man, you guys, this is what happens when you have kids, right? Like exactly. Just- kids in nursery, they're just licking each other and licking Pick the floors. Pick up germy germs. Yeah. Let me stick my tongue in your nose. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I'm I'm drinking a, a homemade hot toddy. Good for great. you. I mean, it's not like you can't get like a hot toddy in a can. No. So to say it's homemade, but I just exactly. really want people to know that I made it. Good job. Meanwhile, yeah, thank you. I'm drinking a White Claw. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm drinking a White Claw, which um, was kind of bought uh, as a joke because the friends who were visiting me, they were, you know, they're from the States. So I was like, oh, sure. oh my God. That's how it starts. We got to have a White Claw. So now yeah, I have yeah. like a pack of white claws, which I, op, you know, I have to finish. So there, mm, there we go. It's a tale as old as time. Mm-hmm. Everyone starts drinking white claw as a joke. And before you know it, it's just, That's oh, it. I, I have to finish this case I got. Yeah, exactly. It turns out my friends weren't as into the joke as I was. Yep. You're like, oh, yay, white claw. Well, not to be outdone by you, I do have, again, we saw friends. Okay, Kim. Okay. We you saw friends, friends too. this weekend. Uh, they were visiting Edinburgh, and they left us with, with like a bunch of their stuff that they had bought, including a can of wine. Oh, can wine, baby! Called "Yes, You Can." <laughs> Brilliant. And it's a Malbec. Okay, <sighs> like I'm going to be vulnerable with you for a moment. I mm-hmm. don't know if Malbec is red wine or white wine. I've only but the can is red. The can but is we've red. We've had right? it in our fridge all night, so I'm just gonna pop it open right. at some Tell point. Us. And like, so at some point in the recording, you'll just I'll keep you posted. All right. I think it's what I think. Sorry, I think it's red. Oh, sorry, we forgot to tell you that in line with our month of Emily Bronte this week, we are covering the 2022 film called Emily. Yeah. So in case and, you know couldn't tell from the title, it's yep. a it's a kind of biopic about Emily Bronte. Oh, that's very interesting that you said that that word biopic. Because mm-hmm, it's not because really, yeah yeah well no you're it's understandable that you said that because because that's what people call it like yeah in reviews and in descriptions it's called kind of an Emily biopic it's sort mm-hmm. of built that way. Um. And I had thoughts about that. Yes, which we, can we, will, get to. we will get to that. So yeah, so should I just start with a you know quick-ish summary? Okay, so the film opens uh, with a very sick Emily Bronte collapsing at the home she shares with her sisters, Charlotte and Anne. 
the older sister Charlotte is with her, and as Emily rests, uh, Charlotte asks her what inspired her to write Withering Heights. This cues the flashback. Um, so Emily is lying on the grass and acting out a dialogue from one of her fictitious worlds. Charlotte returns from school and tells her family that she has been offered a teaching position there. Later that evening, Emily tells Charlotte about the new worlds that she and younger sister Anne have been creating, but Charlotte tries to dissuade her from what she sees as juvenile activities. In the next scene, we have Emily's uh, father, the Reverend Bronte, introducing everyone to the new curate, curate, sorry, a young William Waitman, whom Charlotte initially takes a shining to. Uh, Emily seems intrigued at first, but quickly dismisses him for being too flirtatious, especially when he seems to quickly divert his attentions from Charlotte to her friend Ellen, who was visiting the parsonage. So one evening, the Brontes, Waitman, and Ellen play a game in which they each take turns putting on a mask while pretending to be a famous character. Despite her shyness, Emily is persuaded to take her turn, and when she does, she eerily pretends to be the spirit of her late mother. Things turn serious as each child is convinced that their mother's spirit was really there, and everyone is extremely distressed when the wind bursts the door open. So, you know, super gothic scene. The next day, Emily just buries the mask. So Emily, Charlotte, and their brother Branwell uh, all leave the village for a while. Emily and Charlotte go to the school where Charlotte was to become a teacher, while Branwell goes to the Royal Academy of Arts, where he has just been accepted as a student. Unfortunately, Emily has some sort of a panic attack while at school, so Charlotte has to take her home. Soon after, Branwell returns as well, claiming that he no longer wants to be an artist and that he wants to pursue writing instead. While at home, Emily is made to take French lessons with Waitman, and the two of them argue over religious philosophy. Waitman is also unhappy with Emily spending too much time with Branwell, whom he sees as a corrupting influence. Meanwhile, Branwell encourages freedom in, in spirit and thought in Emily, and the two of them engage in activities such as drinking, smoking opium, romping around the moors, and spying into the windows of a local family, a la Heathcliff and Catherine in Woodring Heights. One night, however, they are caught, Branwell is punished, and made to tutor the child of the rich man who is incidentally called Mr. Linton. Why would what? you want the guy who was kind of peeping Tom on your living room to be like, I know, right? <laughs> to tutor I mean, he must son. not like his son very much. <laughs> He's like, fuck. <laughs> this is the worst punishment I can think of. Yeah. You have to yeah, hang out with my shitty asshole. son. Yeah. yeah. So Emily, like, denies any involvement. She's like, no, no, I wasn't there. Eventually, Branwell starts uh, having an affair with the uh, wife of Mr. Linton. And then he is sent to become the station master instead. So while all of this is happening, Emily and Waitman grow closer, although um, Waitman is shocked by the passion evident in Emily's writings. Their relationship e eventually becomes a romantic and, and sexual one. And this ends when Charlotte returns home and begins to suspect that something is going on between the two. This causes Waitman to abruptly end his relationship with Emily, who is obviously confused and upset. So in, a, in an opioid-driven state, Emily goes on to confront Waitman about it, but he pushes her away, claiming that there is something ungoodly about her. So I was really angry in this scene. I was really angry. Oh my god. 
like my notes was like, what a fucking asshole. Anyway. Oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> In her devastation, Emily takes her anger out on poor Branwell, telling him that his writing is cliche and basically driving him further into drink. Uh, in an attempt to kind of move on, Emily vows never to write again and to instead um, become a teacher with Charlotte, who has just been offered a job in Brussels. Realizing that she's uh, really going to leave, Waitman does, you know, an about turn and um, tries to kind of get Emily back by passing a letter for her to Bradwell. Also, another scene would piss me off. <laughs> you know, I like, I think my notes was like, well, like, why do men do these things? Anyway, sorry. Back to the summary. So Branwell reads the letter and in his anger and possible jealousy, uh, decides not to give it to Emily and to instead tell Waitman that Emily wants nothing to do with him. So time passes and is in a scene reminiscent of a very famous scene from Jane Eyre, Emily has a dream of Waitman calling to her. The next morning she receives calling the news... To her. Or sneaking up on her from a dark corner in her room. I know. He's just like, like, there's a difference. (laughs) It it was like one of those, you know, um, those advertisements for like, for like the nun or something scary like that. Yes. Right? And then it'd be like this blackness and then this face just appears in front of you. Yes. There's this whole scene where it's just like, like, what are we looking at? Yeah. Is that a broom? (laughs) Is that part of a curtain? Is that, oh, fuck, it's Waitman. It's like, Emily! And then he just disappears. So and she then later up. I did that same thing to Keith. And I scared him. <laughs> fuck, hell. <laughs> 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 I had to stand in the corner for like four and a half hours waiting for him to wake up. It was, it was really uncomfortable, but worth it. <sighs> Amazing. Okay, so um, Emily wakes up. And next morning, and basically that morning, she and Charlotte received the news of Waitman's death from cholera. Because, and you know, men, men die from actual things. Women die from death. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he dies from cholera. It's a named disease. So it's she also and Charlotte, a pooping disease, though, I know. which is very funny. <laughs> I know. I was thinking, I was like, oh, man, he must have pooped himself. Serves him right, the asshole. So she and Charlotte return to the parsonage. Branwell also falls ill, and before he dies, he basically uh, passes on the letter from Waitman to Emily, kind of like through their dad. So after Branwell's death, Emily writes and eventually publishes Wuthering Heights. And we then jump to the present day, where a dying Emily turns the question back on Charlotte, asking her where the stories she used to tell her and Anne came from. So after Emily's death, Charlotte's own passion for storytelling, which, um, you know, we know she has tried hard to suppress, uh, is reignited and the film ends with her writing at Emily's death or like the death that they share. The end. Yeah. Right. So, yes, in case you didn't know, not a fan of Waitman or at least not the fan of this Waitman. I'm sure you're, you're going to yeah, talk about the actual, the actual Waitman. Well, yes. Yeah, spoiler alert. Sorry. A We'll talk about, I mean, fine, it was going to be my big reveal. No, I've got a, I've got a better big reveal. Okay. But yes, there was an actual William Waitman, Willie Waits to his friends, Willie Way. Willie Way. Double Wills. Billy Waits. Willie, oh, I was trying to make a masturbation joke, but I can't. Oh. I'm just, I'm, <laughs> I'm very ill. <laughs> so 
there's just so much to unpack. Great summary, by the way. Thanks. Um, but there's so much to unpack with this film. First of all, can I just say that I I came away from it thinking that I had a pretty good movie experience, mm-hmm. I think, because I really liked all the actors. I really liked the cinematography. Yes, I thought it was brilliant. It was so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. I really liked the music. And there were some like directorial choices or like, I don't really know what it is, but like, you know, some of the scenes were very well like directed. Yeah. Eh. So like, okay, if I can put it away, that makes me sound less dumb. Mm. Like, yeah, some, some of the cinematography and the way that some of the scenes were kind of played out mm-hmm. were, were really, really beautiful. And some of the pacing was weird and some of it was spooky. And so there was a lot about it that I did like as a film. Yeah. I enjoy and the, um, you know, you know, as it's like a literature person, I just, I, I enjoy the, the references, you know, to. Oh, and there were the so elements. many. Yeah. So many. There were yeah. so many like little drop in references. So, um, so first of all, Frances O'Connor was the writer and director of this film. And she is an actress that you might know if you're a period drama lover from one of the adaptations of Mansfield Park. The one, the, <laughs> I want to say the brunette one. That sounds really... <laughs> I think I've, yeah, yeah, I think I've seen her in that. I'm going to look her up. Yeah. So there's one adaptation with Billy Piper mm-hmm. and there's one adaptation with Frances O'Connor. So she's in the one with Frances <laughs> O'Connor, believe it or not. And so this is her directorial debut. And you can tell that she's a fan of Wuthering Heights. And she includes so many references to kind of connect it back to the film. Like you said, the fact that um, the the family are called the Lintons, that they spy on them. There are some lines that are plucked like mm. right out where she and her brother Branwell are having an argument and she's like, I'll never be like you. And he's like, you are me. You are me. Yeah. yeah. Um, so she clearly did a lot of research and there's so much about it that's historically accurate. But what I want to come back to, I guess what my sort of like overarching question was in the time since I've watched the movie. So I watched mm-hmm. the movie and I was like, okay, that was like a positive experience. I like a spooky movie. I like how that was shot. I like that music. And then I started to ask myself, like, why? Why did this story have to be told in this way? Mm-hmm. Um, and so to give a little bit of context for how I reached that question, can I tell you about the Bronte family? Yes, please. Okay, I do lo- so, I love them. I know. So <laughs> the, I fe- I'm feeling the pressure because I went into this really not knowing very much about the Brontes, even though Jane Eyre is my favorite book. I don't know very much about like the history of the rest of the family. Mm. I didn't, I knew stuff about Charlotte Bronte and that was pretty much it. Um, And I knew vaguely that kind of everyone was, Everyone be dying of TB. Exactly, yeah. So to tell you, who definitely knows much more about the Brontes than I do, all of this stuff, you obviously know this, but just to give some context, it's a really brief timeline anyway. So um, also 
tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of what we know about the Bronte family comes from a biography written by Elizabeth Gaskell about Charlotte Bronte. Y- yes, yes. So Elizabeth Gaskell was like her friend. Yeah, it's called The Life of Charlotte Bronte. It is an amazing book. Uh, I It's actually, funnily, one of my favorite books. Uh, mm. If you can call it a book. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's, I don't know. I don't know why I love it so much, but there's just, again, maybe it's because, you know, like I read it when I was studying my MA in Victorian literature in Leeds, and then I went to visit the parsonage and all of these things. And yeah. So. Oh, I wanted to tell you a funny little IMDb fact. Ooh. So the woman who plays Emily, the actress mm-hmm. who plays Emily, Emma Mackey, um, she is... Uh, she has a French dad and a British mom, but she grew up in France. But she moved to the UK to go to uni at Leeds to no! study English language and literature. Amazing. Yeah, so you guys are basically the same. Shout out to Leeds. <laughs> so a lot of this research I did comes from various internet articles um, that have pulled from Elizabeth Gaskell's biography and information from the Bronte Museum at Hayworth, which is their actual house in West Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. In the Moors. The Moors. Um, so basic biography of the family. Uh, just keep in mind this kind of central date as it's pertinent to the movie, which is that Emily died in December of 1848, and she was 30 years old. So the Bronte mom and dad are Reverend Patrick Bronte and Maria Branwell, Maria had six children in six years. Yeah. She had first Maria in 1814, Elizabeth in 1815. You see where this is going. Charlotte Mm -hmm. in 1816. Patrick Branwell, who's just called Branwell by everybody, in 1817. And Emily Jane in 1818. And I thought it was great that in the movie they called her Emily Jane a lot. Because apparently that's what her family called her. And then finally, Anne in 1820. And then uh, Maria Bramwell actually died from uterine cancer in 1821, which is so sad. So sad. So she had six children, and then her uterus just turned on her. Yeah, she couldn't couldn't see them grow up. I mean, so what, 1821. So yeah, a year after Anne was born, yeah? Yeah. Mm. So tragic. And then in 1824, uh, Reverend Bronte, who's now the single father, he sent his four eldest girls to the clergy daughter's school at Cowan Bridge, which he thought had a really good reputation. But it turned out he didn't know that it was so horrible, a school with such horrible conditions and awful people, um, that it's actually what Charlotte based Lowell School on in Jane Eyre. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and just like in Jane Eyre, there was an outbreak of disease, um, which was exacerbated by malnutrition and like everybody being cold all the time. And the girls were there less than a year before their father learned how bad it was and pulled them all out. But sadly, he only found out about all this when Maria and Elizabeth were sent home with tuberculosis and oh, they shit. died shortly thereafter within you know, a very short time of each other at the ages of 11 and 10. So those are the two, I know. So those are the two eldest sisters that we don't see or Mm. kind of hear mentioned in the film. The children were then educated at home 
with the help of their aunt Elizabeth Branwell. So that's Aunt Branwell in the film. And they all loved writing and creating stories and little worlds together. And I love this. It's a, I love this one thing I read said that Charlotte and Branwell created the kingdom of Angria. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then Emily decided to create a breakaway island called Gondol with Anne. And they used to write in this little microscript, like pretending that kind of their toys were writing it. And I loved that so much because I used to do that as a kid. I would pretend that like, I would like create these worlds like with my friends. And then I would pretend that my toys were writing and I would Mm -hmm. try to write as small as I could in these like little books that we would make. Oh, that's so to cute. To write little, like, histories yeah. of the country or something like that, or, like, stupid speeches that, like, mm-hmm. the king would make. Um, so I, I never knew that, and I thought that was that was incredible. And actually, Gondol is a lot of the stories that they came up with because they had this really immersive world about these, like, feuds between families and things like that, and Gondol is supposed to be set in Moorland. So the theory is then that Actually, a lot of Withering Heights is based on that. Oh, there you go. So in my case, it was like the Playmobil dollhouse. That was like the setting or like the Playmobil pirate ship. (laughs) So then Charlotte actually went to a nice school as a teenager and she loved it. Uh, But when Emily joined her, she suffered from severe anxiety and she went back home. Uh, Charlotte and Emily were governesses in Brussels in 1842 and it seems like they had a great time there but then they came home when their aunt branwell died that year Mm. the sisters then decided to publish a collection of their poems together in 1846 and they did it under men's pen names so they were currer ellis and acton bell like using their first Mm. like the first letter of their first names they created boys names and then the surname bell In 1847, Emily published Withering Heights under Ellis Bell, Charlotte published Jane Eyre as Currer Bell, and Anne published Agnes Grey as Acton Bell. And their brother Branwell was an artist and a writer, and unfortunately he did suffer from alcoholism and opiate addiction. And he was the tutor for a family, and he did smooch on... The, the wife yep. of that family. Mm-hmm. So that was another little detail. Mm-hmm. So then uh, Branwell, so this all happened really fast that they started publishing. And then pretty soon they were publishing under their their real names. Pretty soon those books were being published under their real names. Like in 1848, they started coming out like reprints were started coming out in their actual names. But then, of course, that's when tragedy struck that year. And Branwell, Emily, and Anne all died from tuberculosis within eight months. So Branwell first died in September of 1848. There's some debate over what he actually died of, but people say it was probably tuberculosis um, that was aggravated by his alcoholism and and opiate addictions Mm -hmm. another fascinating detail is he did die standing up he according to elizabeth gaskell insisted on dying standing up oh yeah yeah i read that weird detail in the movie 
Emily then died in December of 1848, and Anne died in May of 1849. And when she died, Emily was working on a novel, which Charlotte later destroyed. I don't know if Emily asked her to destroy it, Mm. but whatever the details of that, that's what happened. So because tuberculosis played such a huge factor in this story, I just thought I might give you a a few maybe tuberculosis facts. Yes. Because I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I'm I'm actually a certified period drama doctor. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I have my PDMD. Brilliant. Sorry, did so, you not know that? I didn't know this. Yeah, so So um, basically wait, so so each time you've been referring to female characters dying from death, like that's your like medical opinion. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. Oh, wow. That comes with the weight wow. of of my very specific certification. So that means I can diagnose I w- I can only diagnose characters in period dramas. Mhm. Um, I can also give medical advice to characters in period oh, okay. dramas. Well, um, you know, I mean, any medical advice is good, right? I mean, you know, yeah. think back to the, the doctor in Withering Heights who, who just kind of like noped out of there. You know, he's like, yeah. nope, I'm done. And actually in that particular scenario, that's probably what I would have done too. <laughs> yeah. I'll call those people. Yeah. So, And it also means that I have about the same level of medical knowledge as like an 18th, 19th century real doctor okay that's good so you're gonna be bleeding people yeah yeah well that's what i figure okay good job i mean i've never had to do it mm-hmm. um it's awkward to do it to fictional characters mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not really recommended for the tv screen apparently it's really bad for the plasma <laughs> but i can tell you a little bit about tuberculosis also because as part of my education as part of my certification i listened to another podcast called this podcast will kill you oh yay they're really handy for period drama lovers if you want to know anything about these um historical diseases unfortunately you do learn that a lot of them aren't very historical like tuberculosis is still prevalent in the world but for our purposes you get to learn about the actual diseases that people died of in historical dramas, like tuberculosis. Um, So tuberculosis is a bacterium, um, which apparently is pretty similar to leprosy. It's a cousin disease of leprosy. I have no idea what that means. Yeah. But I guess like the bacterium are kind of similar. Like they look, you can tell, like if you look at the bacterium, you can tell a family resemblance. Um. Like so, the same eyes and nose and yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, okay, good, good. So um, the active symptoms are really long lasting. So it can, you know, someone in a period of drama will have that kind of cough for a really long time before they actually die. So they get fatigue, malaise, weight loss. They get the cough. They lose weight, which is why it was called like the wasting disease or consumption. Mm. It's super infectious, and without treatment, the mortality rate is about 45%, which is relevant here because apparently Emily refused all medical treatment when she came down with tuberculosis. Oh, yeah. And then wasn't that that the story where like right at the end, she then turns to Charlotte and says like, yeah, you can call the doctor now or something like that. Yeah. If you want to call the doctor, I'll (laughs) see him. Oh, bless. Did I, 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 
Oh, yeah. I think I only just told you, right? My grandfather died of tuberculosis. My, yes. I know. That's how recent it is. It is. Like, I mean, okay, I never knew him. Mm-hmm. He was my mom's dad. So when he passed away when my mom was very young, like 16, you know? So mm-hmm. that was what, in the 60s, I would say? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's how, you know, recent, like, it is. I mean, and that's that's in a place like Singapore, right? And obviously, yeah. in places all over the world, people are still... Yeah, shit. Know, like, when I was dying. in South yeah. Africa applying for a visa, I had to do loads of TB screening because it's still such mm. such a prevalent disease there that does kill people. Yeah. But, so let's get back to, you know, the 1800s, though. Yeah. So Branwell, Emily, and Anne died within that eight-month period between 1848 and 1849. And this podcast will kill you says that by 1850, between 75 and 90% of all the people on Earth had the tuberculosis bacterium like in their bodies. And of those, 20% went on to develop the disease. So I know that's a lot of numbers rattling around, Mm. but you've got like a huge chunk of people who have in their bodies. 20% of them, that's still a huge number of people on Earth. And then if 45% of people die of that, And then that you still have things like cholera to die of? Yeah, I know. Fuck. And don't forget women be dying of death. Mm -hmm. And their uterus is flying out on trains. Yeah. So just to round up the biography, Charlotte, after surviving all of her siblings, married the Reverend Arthur Bell Nichols in 1854 and she became pregnant soon after in 1855. And then also tragically, she died not from tuberculosis, but from hyperemesis gravidarum, mm. which is extreme pregnancy sickness, which I'm very familiar with because I had hyperemesis during my pregnancies. Twice. And yes, and I can definitely attest that I understand how women die from that mm. because. Um, the only way that I was able to stop like vomiting and stuff was to have IV fluids. Mm. And then on top of that, eventually they invented like antiemetics. So like pills to help you not be yeah. sick anymore. But if you don't have that, the least you can do is like replace your fluids. Mm. And so they didn't have that until the 1930s. Oh. So women were actually, ooh, it's horrible. I hate it. I mean, and you know, okay, I'm sorry, but like Charlotte Bronte... You know, if you ever go to the um the museum, right, they have, or um, um, again, this was like 20 years ago when I went, you know, you could see like her, uh, her dress and, you know, like her gloves and all the different stuff. And of course, you have the couch where the sofa where Emily Bronte supposedly died on, although there some people say she died in the bed and all these things. Anyway, you'll see she was, Charlotte Bronte was so tiny. Like, she was so tiny. People are dying of these diseases that waste you away when they really don't have a lot to start with. Exactly. I'm just like, oh my God, it was just so heartbreaking. Yeah. So after all this, we have their dad, Reverend Patrick Bronte, who survived, his wife, his sister-in-law, all six of his children, and eventually he died in 1861, I presume of old age. Oh, that poor man. God, let him have passed peacefully in his sleep. Yeah, please. So, so that's the real 
Bronte biographical background, and that's just very cursory. But Frances O'Connor, as she was writing this, she obviously cared a lot about these details. And I understand that Frances O'Connor saw Emily Bronte as a young woman with seemingly little life experience. And on the other hand, she saw Wuthering Heights as this dark, passionate love story. And she wondered how we got from point A to point B. Mm. So she explains this in an interview I read uh, that this is a fictional kind of what if story imagining how Emily might have gained the life experience to write Withering Heights. And it's more of a fan fiction than anything. It's like a, it's like a, a coming into her own story mm-hmm. in a man's world sort of thing. So my issue with this is that the film is still based on real people. So she calls it a fan fiction, but as we touched on earlier, people think of it kind of as a biopic. It might be a throwaway way to describe it, but that's kind of how it's thought of. I think because it's so historically accurate. And Mm -hmm. I think if you're doing a historical like fanfic, I think of something like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I actually haven't seen, but I really want to because I have seen Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and I I was surprised at how much it. I liked it. Mm. I actually really liked it, mm. um, and I think that Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter would be fun too. Um, I don't know. I would. I'd really like to find out. But that's the kind of fanfic that I see is that you take these whether they be fictional characters or historical people, and you you make something kind of new out of it. Mm. Whereas this is just kind of And it's of like a shifting. clear signaling, right? That yes. this is not, yeah. Yeah. So this instead is kind of a, a shifting of degrees mm-hmm. and of changing the people just enough to fit in this new love story plot line. And in the process, the movie, I think, and misses the point of Wuthering Heights, and does every single character dirty. All right. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I messaged you this week, right? I said I wasn't happy with the fact that, okay, what generally annoys me, right, is whenever there's a story that has to be told about a woman, a famous woman, blah, 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 right? They always seem to want to put in some you know, or, or at least focus on, like, the romantic element. Yes. You know? And... and then, Sorry, I'm, I'm just going to... Yeah, gonna sorry. This. So, sorry. So there's, like, the focus on the romantic element, and which I, I know, you know, you're, you're, you're going to get into the problems with that, that romantic element here. And then, that then also links up with how my general bugbear with the ways in which, like, general pop culture, right... Two things, Wuthering Heights and Frankenstein. Sorry, I, I will get back to Frankenstein. It's going to, right? It's like because the movies and, um, and all of that stuff have kind of shaped the ways in which these books, um, you know, these are brilliant, beautiful books, you know, and there's so much to them. And, you know, as we covered in the Wuthering Heights episode, right? The majority of the movies, including the one we covered, just focuses on the love story, blah, blah, blah. But that wasn't what, I mean, that alone wasn't what was amazing about Withering Heights and what was amazing about 
Emily being able to write that, right? It was the second half of it, the horror and the hatred and the, you know, jealousy and the revenge. Like, that was the thing, you know? And again, like Frankenstein, that's a whole other issue which, you know, we can cover. We'll, we'll probably talk about that at some other time. But similarly, long and short of the Frankenstein thing is the depiction of Frankenstein's monster always annoys me because the monster is a beautiful romantic construct. He read Paradise Lost and he's wonderful and eloquent in the book and he doesn't come across like that in popular culture. Are you are you saying that we need more fuckable Frankenstein's monsters? Yes. Because I am so on board with that. I know. I mean, I bet, you know, I bet he had the most like melodious voice. I bet he was all soothing and stuff. But yeah, well, so we anyway. have the penny we have the penny dreadful version of Frankenstein's yes, monster. That is that is why that is one of the reasons why I really liked Penny Dreadful because it yeah. kind of showed that tortured figure. Who and was, you like, would, so wouldn't well you? Read. Yeah. yeah, of like, course I would. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But anyway, sorry, all this to wrap this up is to say that, you know, what my, one of my problems with, with this movie was, yeah, the focus on the romantic elements, which kind of linked back to the focus on the romantic elements in Wuthering Heights. That's, I will shut yes. up now. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't, ever. Um, that's what I was going to say. I, that is not what I was going to say. I'm sorry. I, let me backpedal that really quick. So I am not, and no one has ever accused me of being a literary scholar. And if they ever did, I would fight them. But we can like all agree that Withering Heights isn't a passionate love story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And that Emily isn't like putting herself in the role of Catherine in her head. No, you if know, anything, she's, yeah. she's like she's Ellen. You know, she's the one. She's the observer. She's she's the one saying all these people are so fucked up. Yeah, and like she clearly had some. I mean, that that's the thing. Like, what was this, the fucked upness that she that that she could see or read? Or, you know, I mean, like you know that that is the mystery, right? You know, how was that knowledge? You know, and the same thing right, with Charlotte Bronte, right? Everyone, you know. But at least she had a little bit more outside exposure, right? Because, you know, she went to Brussels and blah, 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 and all these things. But but Emily but, went yeah. to Brussels too. That's true. And I was reading as well that Charlotte had kind of a, not affair, but she had sort of an emotional thing with this married man when she was in Brussels. And Emily would have been privy to that. Yeah, and know? Charlotte then wrote Villette that was kind of based on that, yeah. So that was one of my major thoughts was like, why is it that not having a romance in her life makes her this mysterious figure with little life experience in like the popular imagination? Because she's obviously still living a rich, full life. Mm -hmm. She travels, she has close relationships. And like, can, can we just put to bed this idea that you have to, in order to to be a great artist or be an interesting person, you have to have sex or, you know, take recreational opium tincture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, they kept, uh, yeah. So, like, at this, yeah, you're right. There was, there was a bit that was quite hard handed or heavy handed, sorry, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they're like, ooh, look at her, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I also, I get that she got the first batch or whatever the test tube shot of opium <laughs> yeah. uh, from Branwell. But where did she get the rest of it? 
I don't know. Maybe she was saving it. I, I, I don't know how she was. She apparently was opium tincture, right? Maybe just like yeah. a few drops in your water. I don't know how people you, had opium back then. You could get it. So to tap into my medical expertise, once again, around this time period, women were taking opium tincture or were taking laudanum for period pains. Yeah, all right. So she could have gotten it that way, to That's be true. fair. But I like to think of Emily, maybe in my headcanon now, is that she is sort of this ace, she's this asexual icon. You know, maybe she really was asexual, aromantic, did not have interest in these things in the same way that the rest of her family did. Mm. And she was just a keen observer and had sort of a, a dark quality to her writing. Yeah, that makes her a well-rounded enough person. I think we don't have to think of her as this this mystery or this other big motif in the film, which is this idea that Emily is a sexy writing witch. She's got oh the my God, devil yes. up inside her, and it's making her write sexy sex poems. That and so, that, that shocks priests and shit. Yeah. Oof. Which okay, so we all know now that. Willie Waits, Reverend William Waitman, was a real dude, and he was actually a real curate working under Patrick Bronte. He was also widely beloved and hot. I've seen his portrait oh, yeah, seen by Charlotte Bronte. Yeah. Oh, I've seen the drawings, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen I've seen his profile. <laughs> Whew. Um, so he was widely beloved, including by Branwell, who was like his bestie, who was there with him at his death, like not in an I- a weird, ironic way. <laughs> he was yeah. actually like- there for him as his friend. And this is my big reveal. He was allegedly the sweetheart of Anne Bronte, not Emily. And Charlotte thought that Anne and William Waitman would have gotten together had he not died of cholera in Mm. 1842 at the age of 25. And when I read about in his real biography about him dying of cholera, I did not teehee. I did not find it cool and funny because everyone was so devastated that the community actually made him a monument, which still stands at the Bronte Museum now. Oh gosh, I never noticed that when I was, well, yeah, clearly another visit is needed. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I read some of the stuff. I mean, everyone seemed to like him. He seems like a nice person. Yeah. so and The real guy. I, yeah. Yeah, the real guy. So instead of like this story of him, I feel mm-hmm. so bad for him. I, I feel so bad for everyone, for the way they're depicted. These poor dead people. Yeah. Like... Like, Anne doesn't have a story at all. No, exactly. (gasps) So, like, we get this, like, weirdly otherwise historically accurate movie in which we get, like, Emily and Anne uh, barely have a relationship instead of being, like, really close Mm. sisters. We could have gotten the development of of their relationship. I mean, I liked having the relationship between Branwell and Emily, but it kind of pissed me off that instead of her with her little sister... It's she's being developed by the one kind of man sibling that she has. Yeah, and I think the focus on that was again, you know, we was like trying hard to like look, you know, parallels with with Wuthering Heights. You know, we're like, okay, we get it, you know, 
And, you know, it's like very, very clear early on that like Brenwell was supposed to like represent the Heathcliff character and the weird, you know, yeah. semi-incestuous things that's good. It has, you know, because Heathcliff was like the adopted brother of Catherine, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it, that's another way that, so Anne is done dirty because she's barely in the film at all. They just kind of ship her off to be mm. a governess again for the Lintons. Uh, she barely exists, um, even though she was so important to Emily. And it sounds like she kind of helped inspire Wuthering Heights. Mm. And then Branwell gets turned into, instead of like a nice brother and friend and kind of artist and poet in his mm. own right, he's a, this like weird, jealous creep who doesn't want his sister to find love. And then Waitman is, instead of this much-beloved dude who probably had a big old crush on Anne, his nice 25-year-old who died of yeah. a horrible disease, we he's like this total faux-pious dickhead who tries to ghost his girlfriend while they're living in the same house. And then, like, she has to hound him for weeks, being like, what is going on? What the hell is going on? And he's like, nah... And then when he finally explains himself, he all but calls her possessed. Yeah. And, and like he tells her that to you kick are rocks. ungoodly. I mean, it, it's, it's the whole, oh, you know, you made me do it, right? Situation. Like you yeah. corrupted me. You, know? you corrupted yeah. me with your, with your devil pessary mm-hmm. that also makes you write weird and made you do weird seance things with a mask, which is the whole point of that whole mask kind of scene and mm. everything, right? Is that we're supposed to wonder, like, was she really channeling her mother or mm-hmm. wasn't she? Is she connected with the dark spirit world of the 1840s mm. or isn't she? Uh, does she have the devil up inside her or not? Ooh, we don't know. What a mystery she is. And then... God, Waitman, his attempt to win her back is so fucking weak. He hands a note to her drunk brother, who he must, like, know hates him. I know! And then he's there when she's stepping into the carriage, but doesn't say anything to her. Yeah, it's not as if it was one of those, like, you know, dramatic scenes where, like, he arrives just as the carriage is, you know, going away. No, no, he's there walking her, watching her get up into the carriage. They're not catching a train. (laughs) Like, he could have just said, oh, do you have five minutes? Can I have a word? Yeah. There's just something I have to tell her real quick about French. How about, like, did you get my letter? Did you get my letter? Just want to make sure your brother says, you told me to fuck off. Do you really want me to fuck off? And then ideally she would have said yes, but we get the idea that no, she would have gone back to him. Mm. Um, She should not have gone back to him. She should have, like I did, laughed her ass off at the thought of him pooping himself to death. Yeah, man. (sighs) Screw you, Waitman. No, sorry. Screw, Screw you, Waitman. Movie Waitman. Good job, real Waitman, if you were, you know, a good dude. I feel like you took that to a dark place, and I appreciate that. <laughs> Maybe I have a, I have the, a devil passery in me. You have a I devil do have passery. a black cat. <laughs> and a gray cat, which is like there devil light. And, you know, as you can see right now, she is like just beyond my shoulder. She's like, did someone mention the devil? 
And so to like bring it back to my original question, why do all that? Yeah. Why did you have to tell this story like that? Why did you have to make, why did you have to take this great cinematographer, all this great music and, and put it to this weird, not biography biography that makes everyone seem as shitty as the characters in Withering Heights. Yeah. Which was maybe the point. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say. It was like, everyone's fucked up. But if that's, and I think it was because she, when she's dying, right, on the couch and Charlotte is like, how did you write that book? How did you know people are all fucked up? And her answer basically is like, oh, I've seen everybody be fucked up. Yeah. Charlotte is depicted as fucked up. Yep. Right? They have this weird antagonistic relationship. But that Brenwell's I mean, messed up. I mean, but Branwell was, you know, okay, you know, he's always depicted even in the Poor Branwell. It's but, yeah. is it not enough that he was struggling with addiction? Yeah. And then died of TB? Like yeah. do we also have to make him jealous in the most uncomfortable way possible? Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. You know, it was like you depict him as, yeah, he struggles, right, with, with opioid and alcohol addiction. Yeah, you're right, that's factual, you know. But you don't have to go like, ooh, you know, he secretly loved his sister. I'm just going to see if I have, I have a little, like, subheading called Random Thoughts. Oh, cool. It is definitely a huge pet peeve of mine in period dramas when, when women are just walking around the town and at church with their hair down. I don't care if you're high on opium tincture like you gotta put your hair up in a bun slap a bonnet on it bitch and yeah brushes i've seen them at the parsonage there was weird kind of similarities to La- lady chatterley's lover that they're like Ooh. meeting in that abandoned yes uh cottage or whatever mm-hmm. and then there's some dancing in the rain yes no butts though no butts which i actually appreciated i needed a butt break yeah. Um, and finally, what is it with men in period dramas shouting creeds from heights? <laughs> like when you have George in a room with a view getting his ass up in a tree and <laughs> in the Florentine countryside shouting some similar stuff. Mm. Freedom! Beauty! Oh, and we've got... Uh, Branwell showing his street cred as a period yeah. drama free man by mm-hmm. shouting similar stuff from mm-hmm. a, a craggy ledge. Although I will say, I do, I did really like the um, image doubling or image kind of like callback. If you think back to like the Withering Heights, the 1939, right? You know, version that we talked mm-hmm. about. And there was that, the you know, multiple times whenever... Heathcliff and Catherine meet on their like secret castle, like quote unquote castle. That's like the crags and the stuff. And there were many times where you could definitely, you could really see that they were li- deliberately framing a part of the moors to kind of like show that mirroring. And I, I, I like that a lot. I, yeah, yeah. So. I, I really liked the way they shot and depicted the moorlands in this. 
mm-hmm. because obviously, if, you know, in the 1939 version, bless them, they're on a soundstage and they just brought in a whole bunch of Heather. Oh, like, no, it was, yeah, it was actually in, in, in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and then they said crazy. that like all of their Heather grew mm, really like yeah. wildly. Yeah. But this is filmed around the, you know, the actual West Yorkshire mm-hmm. area. And it's so beautiful. They don't make it seem bleak and desolate. They mm. show the diversity of it. They show, you know, the greenery and the waterfalls and yeah. all this stuff. So I watch a f- uh, I watch a show sometimes on Channel 4 um, when I'm feeling really low. Like, mm-hmm. I might watch it now that I'm feeling quite ill and sorry for myself. I watch a show called The Yorkshire Farm. Ooh. And uh, it's a family of shepherds. Mm-hmm. They have a sheep farm in quite remote Yorkshire. I'd actually like to see how far it is from the Bronte Museum. Mm-hmm. And I I know it's remote and you can tell it's moorland, but you would never call it desolate. Mm. It's absolutely gorgeous. So we didn't love this movie. No, we but- didn't love this movie. I enjoyed it again, just as a movie. As a movie. Yeah. I enjoyed it. A right? cinematic a- experience with my eyeballs sitting on my couch. Yes. I I liked it. I wanted it to be about something else. Yeah. And um, Emma Mackey, you know, I like her. I liked you know, all I like, the actors. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, so no, so they all did well and it was lovely and I enjoyed watching the movie. But yes, as a historical depiction of the quote unquote life of Emily Bronte. I really no. don't want it to become yeah. canon. Like, yeah. please don't let it. It'd be so annoying. Yes. Okay, but you have awards because I do actually have a sincere award. I have an award as someone with multiple tattoos. <laughs> I'm sorry, lamest, you know, tattoo. Yes. Lamest idea. tattoo idea. So uh, I was oh actually going to ask that's you about this. So basic, Branwell. So basic. Yeah. Well, that's what they called him. They called him basic Branwell. I mean, <laughs> uh, <laughs> this might be the dirtiest they did Branwell because you kind of get the sense that... so. We didn't touch on this in the summary, but there's this part, if you haven't seen the film or if you don't remember it, where Branwell shows Emily that he's got this some kind of, he's got freedom in thought. Freedom in thought, yeah. Written on his forearm. And the implication there is that it's a tattoo. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they were doing like cliche scripted <laughs> Like sayings <laughs> yeah. as tattoos. Live, love, life. In, in the 1840s. Um, and then he had like an infinity sign under it. It was oh, weird. Yeah. Um, but then it seemed like later, which is even sadder, is that Emily like wrote it in ink on her yeah. arm. Um, but I couldn't, I didn't know actually, I couldn't decide if it was a real tattoo or not. I mean, although I would say like, Teenage me, right? Before I was old enough to actually get a tattoo, used to draw stuff on my arm. Yes, absolutely. Ink, right? No judgment like, there. Look at me, my tattoo. But hell no, not not a lame-ass line like, freedom in thought, look at me. So yeah, sorry, yeah. That was my award. Lame-ass, most basic tattoo idea. Branwell, I, I expected more of you, man. 
we can say that we expected more from Branwell throughout this whole film. Yeah, as, as I'm sure his father did as well. <laughs> so, right, that's my award. So mine's, mine's kind of sincere from, like, a cinematic point of view. Mm-hmm. So this is my best scene of anticipation. You remember mm-hmm. when she's in the cottage, so she's gotten a note from Willie saying, meet me in the smooching cottage. Mm-hmm. And she's sitting there under the window and she keeps turning around and she's seeing him coming closer and closer. Mm. And it's basically like he is a boner walking towards her. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, that's really crass. If I were to rephrase it, I would say that it's like she's a lion. She's a lioness lying in the tall grass, which is appropriate because, you know, she's surrounded by hay. And you see her like beautiful eyes turn toward the window and like... Her prey coming mm-hmm. toward her, and it's a massive boner, and then she gobbles it. And that that scene really made me feel that sense of kind of excitement and anticipation, and I really thought it was well done. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was. Yeah, I agree. But um, then although it it also made me it, it gave me Ninja Cat vibes. <laughs> <laughs> it did though. You know, you know that everybody, come on, listeners, that like Google Ninja Cat videos. You know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Where the cat's going, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like mm-hmm. each time you speak of the devil, there you go. My, my Ninja Cat has just popped up. But then it was also ruined for me because how, how and why did you take off all that clothing? Oh my God, I know. I was just like, Jesus Christ, you, you know, know put it all back put in? Put it all back on? You can't have been like arousing to take no. all of that. I don't know. Maybe it was, but I don't know. it's a cold cottage as well. Okay, I know. I like in Lady Chatterley again. I harped maybe a little bit too much on like the temperature, but but you're in an unheated cottage. You're just on some hay and a stone floor. I would want to keep my clothing on. Yeah, I mean, okay, as someone who's lived in West Yorkshire, it's cold, man. <sighs> Didn't seem like it was the height of summer. So, you know. Maybe just a few petticoats. Just yeah. <laughs> if she could just be like, let me stop you there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, would he even know how to lace her back up, though? How did she get into it that morning? Not yeah. by herself. Yeah. How is she getting back into it? She's going to be late for dinner. Yeah. Well, she could pull a Lady Chatley and just carry it, like, you yeah. know, like, how she just get carried her just bra in like, her hand. And, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Emily just walking in with, like, 16 layers <laughs> of petticoats and just, like, all the laces tangled. Like, what up, Dad? This is normal. All right. So, so thanks for coming with us on this Emily Bronte journey. Yes. And this, again, was inspired by listener requests. Mm-hmm. So please write to us either on Instagram, we're at, at fetchsmellingsalt, or you can just email us at fetchsmellingsalt at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to see us cover or if you would like us to do another little double feature month oh, yeah. of Yes, please. Somebody. It was really fun. Yeah. I, I enjoyed this. Yay. Okay, Bye. so uh, goodbye. Goodbye. It's all finished. <laughs>